From New York, this is Democracy Now! President Biden, I call on you with all your official and humane qualities to stop this humanitarian catastrophe, this genocide against our innocent people. History will not absolve anyone of these crimes. I call on you to provide relief to our besieged people in Gaza. The war must stop immediately. As Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas calls on the U.S. to help end Israel's 45-day bombardment, the situation in Gaza grows more desperate as Israel attacks the Indonesian hospital and the Jabalia refugee camp while the Palestinian death toll tops 13,000. We'll speak to an official at UNRWA. Over the weekend, Israeli strikes hit at least two UN schools where thousands of displaced Palestinians had sought refuge. We were really, really outraged to see that once again, an UNRWA school that is sheltering displaced people in Gaza got hit and people died in our schools. Schools are protected places. Schools are places where people uh, go looking for safety. Plus, we remember the Israeli-Canadian peace activist Vivian Silver, who was killed in the October 7th Hamas attack. She was declared dead last week after her remains were identified. She'd spent decades working for peace. We're no longer willing to do this. We must reach a political agreement. We must change the paradigm that we have been taught for seven decades now, where we've been told that only war will bring peace. We don't believe that anymore. It's been proven that it's, no tr- it's not true. We'll speak with her Palestinian colleague. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli tanks have surrounded Gaza's Indonesian hospital as Israel's military continues its relentless assault on the Gaza Strip's health infrastructure. Earlier today, Israeli artillery fire killed at least 12 people inside the medical complex, where about 700 others, including medical staff and injured people, remain besieged. Egyptian television showed ambulances carrying sick and premature babies passing through the Rafah border crossing to Egypt. After the U.N. assisted in moving 31 premature babies from Gaza's al-Shifa hospital to Rafah on Sunday, UNICEF warned the babies' conditions were incredibly fragile after the multiple moves in extremely dangerous conditions. Other babies died as medical services collapsed at al-Shifa. Doctors say babies had to drink formula prepared with contaminated water, further endangering their survival. A number have infections. A World Health Organization team visited the Al-Shifa hospital, which it called a death zone, and lauded the heroic healthcare workers sacrificing everything to treat patients. As healthcare professionals, I am absolutely humbled by the work of you and your teams, the heroic efforts that you've made. I mean, I have no words. Israel's claimed it uncovered a Hamas tunnel at the Al-Shifa hospital. The claim was rejected by Hamas and medical workers and has not been verified by independent parties. Israel also said hostages are being held at Al-Shifa. Hamas has previously said it took several hostages to hospitals for treatment. 
On Saturday, an Israeli airstrike killed at least 50 Palestinian civilians at the UN-run Al-Fahura school in the Jabalia refugee camp, though some estimates put the number as high as 200. A separate attack on the Tal al-Zathar school also resulted in civilian casualties. Other parts of Jabalia were also hit, including a large residential complex. This is a Gaza ambulance worker. We are trying to focus on pulling out survivors. As you can see, we are working with our own two hands. There is no equipment. The only excavator is in northern Gaza, and it stopped working. The bulldozer stopped working. A large number of civil service and ambulance cars stopped working because of fuel running out. Israel has killed at least 13,000 Palestinians and injured another 30,000 since the start of its assault. The death toll includes at least 5,500 children, or one out of every 200 children in Gaza. Another 1,800 children are missing under the rubble, most of them presumed dead. Over the weekend, reports emerged that talks between Israel, the U.S., and Qatari mediators for Hamas were closing in on a deal to release dozens of women and children hostages and pause fighting for five days. In Israel, thousands completed a march from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem Saturday, where they demanded the government do more to release their loved ones who were taken hostage by Hamas on October 7th. They have to talk to the families. It's impossible that there are 240 kidnapped people and the government, our government, isn't talking to them, doesn't, isn't telling them what's going on, what's on the, what's on the table. Yemen's Houthi rebels say they seized a Japanese cargo ship in the Red Sea. The vessel, named Galaxy Leader, is reportedly partially owned by an Israeli businessman. Around 25 people are believed to be on board the India-bound ship, though Israel said none of their citizens are among the crew. A Houthi spokesperson warned the international community regional security is at stake unless it helps put an end to the war on Gaza. The Yemeni armed forces confirmed the continuation of carrying out military operations against the Israeli enemy until the aggression on the Gaza Strip stops and the ongoing heinous crimes against our Palestinian brothers in Gaza and the West Bank cease. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed at least two Palestinians during multiple raids on Sunday. Israeli military and settler attacks have killed some 206 Palestinians in the West Bank since October 7th. Meanwhile, Palestinians living in the West Bank's heavily fortified and monitored H2 district in Hebron have been under one of its longest and strictest lockdowns ever since the start of the conflict. Some 39,000 Palestinians and around 900 extremist Israeli settlers live in H2. Palestinians have largely been barred from leaving their homes except during very brief windows, with Israeli soldiers forcing them back inside at gunpoint. President Biden warned violence against Palestinians in the West Bank could result in a visa ban against Israeli perpetrators. In a Washington Post op-ed published Saturday, Biden also continued to reject a ceasefire in Gaza and called for a two-state solution. 
In New Haven, Connecticut, hundreds of students and alumni from Yale and Harvard brought a football game between the two universities to a halt for nearly two hours Saturday night as they called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Protesters waved Palestinian flags and banners that read, end the occupation, end the genocide, and free Palestine. They also demanded Yale and Harvard divest from weapons manufacturers that supply Israel's military. Meanwhile, Palestinian rights advocates shut down a convention organized by the California Democratic Party in Sacramento Saturday. Several protesters held a sit-in, while others marched through the convention hall chanting, ceasefire now. Demonstrators also disrupted speeches by U.S. Senate candidates, Congress members Katie Porter, Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee. Outside the convention, protesters placed 500 pairs of children's shoes to represent the over 5,000 Palestinian children killed in Gaza. The American Public Health Association's governing council is calling on President Biden and Congress to press for a ceasefire in Gaza. A resolution approved last week by 90 percent of members also calls for the, quote, de-escalation of the current conflict by securing the immediate release of the hostages and those detained, the restoration of water, fuel, electricity and other basic services, and the passage of adequate humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. Unquote. Recently, delegates to the American Medical Association voted against debating a similar resolution calling for a ceasefire in order to protect civilian lives and health care personnel. The group Healthcare Workers for Palestine said in response, the AMA has a responsibility to uphold the well-being of healthcare workers and minimize human suffering, and it's clear that these values are not being upheld by some of the most influential physicians in the country, they said. In Argentina, far-right libertarian Javier Millet has been elected president. Official results Sunday showed Millet, who's been compared to Donald Trump with 56 percent of votes, defeating the centrist Peronist candidate Sergio Massa, who conceded defeat. Millet is a climate crisis denier who's proposed banning abortion, easing restrictions on guns, and vowed to shut down Argentina's central bank, replacing the nation's currency with the U.S. dollar. Millet has also questioned the tally of murders committed by the Argentine military dictatorship during Argentina's dirty war from 1976 to 1983. He spoke from Buenos Aires Sunday night. Argentina's situation is critical. The changes our country needs are drastic. There's no room for gradualism. There's no room for tepidity. There's no room for half measures. In Liberia, the incumbent president, George Weah, conceded a tight race to Joseph Bouake Friday. Voters say Weah was not able to fulfill his promises of reducing poverty, increasing employment and stepping corruption. Bouake, a former vice president under President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, had lost to Weah in 2017's presidential election. In a post-election interview, Bouake vowed to redistribute wealth from the exploitation of Liberian resources to its citizens. The mining sector is going to be within our very, very watch. We're going to know what is happening with our resources, what are the people getting for them, and how 
do, what do we see after they are no longer there? Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign into law a bill approved by lawmakers last week allowing local law enforcement to arrest immigrants and asylum seekers and charge them with a new state crime for crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The bill would also give Texas judges the authority to issue removal orders to Mexico. Meanwhile, other legislation passed by the Republican-majority Texas House last week would appropriate $1.5 billion to build a border wall. The ACLU has condemned the measures, calling it, quote, some of the most radical anti-immigrant bills ever passed by any state. In British immigration news, the U.K. Supreme Court ruled the government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda was unlawful. The proposal was first announced last April and met with swift legal challenges and condemnation from rights groups. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said he would instead seek a formal treaty with Rwanda and introduce emergency legislation in hopes of pushing through the plan. In climate news, global average surface temperatures Friday averaged more than 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. It's the first time on record that Earth's daily average temperature has exceeded the 2-degree benchmark. The 2015 Paris Climate Agreement set just 1.5 degrees as the maximum allowable global temperature rise. In the Horn of Africa, at least 130 people have been killed after unrelenting heavy rains triggered once-in-a-century flooding in Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. More than three-quarters of a million people have been displaced, with the death toll expected to rise. The flooding follows the region's worst drought in 40 years, which pushed millions of people into extreme hunger. Bolivia's environment ministry reports a severe drought combined with slash-and-burn farming practices have driven an unprecedented number of wildfires. The fires have scorched nature reserves and indigenous communities in Bolivia's Amazon and into neighboring Brazil, killing wildlife and triggering air quality alerts that have forced thousands of schools to cancel classes. On Friday, environmentalists rallied in the Bolivian capital of La Paz to demand government action. Millions of animals are dying. Our Mother Earth is dying. Our vegetation, fauna, and flora are disappearing. There are thousands of animals. The firemen who are there still cannot put out the fire. We want a national emergency to be declared because we want our land to be safe. Back in the United States, a Colorado judge has ruled that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection, but that it does not bar him from appearing on the presidential ballot next year. The judge ruled the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding office does not apply to presidents. Friday's ruling comes after courts in Michigan and Minnesota also shot down attempts to keep Trump off those states' primary ballots. In related news, the new House Speaker Mike Johnson announced he'll release 44,000 hours of footage from the January 6th Capitol insurrection to the public. With the move, Johnson fulfills a pledge he made to the far-right members of his party, whom he circumvented last week in order to pass a stopgap government funding bill. 
Extremist conspiracy theories alleging federal agents participated in the attack have already started recirculating since the first 90 hours of footage were released Friday. Democrats and other critics are warning the videos, which show in detail how rioters entered the Capitol complex and how lawmakers escaped, could endanger the safety of staff and Congress members. And Rosalind Carter, wife of former President Jimmy Carter, has died at the age of 96. Carter served as a longtime political advisor and strategist as Jimmy Carter went from a rural state senator to Georgia governor in 1970 and president of the United States in 1976. As First Lady, Rosalind Carter joined White House cabinet meetings and served as an envoy to Latin America. Time magazine in 1979 declared her to be the second most powerful person in the United States. After leaving the White House, she campaigned to expand U.S. mental health services. She and Jimmy Carter also worked with the charity Habitat for Humanity. Jimmy Carter, who turned 99 in October, entered home hospice care in February. They had both just celebrated their 77th anniversary. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we get the latest from Gaza, where the Palestinian death toll has topped 13,000. Stay with us. Cities by Naibarguti. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Health officials in Gaza say the overall death toll from Israel's 45-day bombardment has topped 13,000. More than 1.7 million Palestinians have been displaced, with many fearing they'll never be allowed to return home. In Gaza City, Israeli tanks have surrounded the Indonesian hospital. Palestinian officials say at least 12 people have already been killed in Israeli strikes on the hospital. The government of Indonesia has condemned Israel's targeting of the hospital, saying it's a clear violation of international humanitarian laws. Meanwhile, 31 premature babies were evacuated from al-Shifa, the largest hospital in Gaza City— which has been seized by the Israeli military. The babies who are suffering from dehydration, hypothermia, and sepsis have been taken to Rafah. Some have already been moved across the border.
On Saturday, an Israeli airstrike killed at least 50 Palestinian civilians at a U.N.-run school in the Jabalia refugee camp, though some estimates put the number as high as 200. A second UNRWA school was also hit Saturday. This comes as the World Food Program is warning residents of Gaza may soon face starvation due to a massive shortage of food. We begin today's show with Tamara Arafai, spokesperson for UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees. She's joining us from Jordan. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Tamara. If you can talk about the situation right now in Gaza, um, we understand U.N. Um, workers were allowed in to help transport these premature babies from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. Some have crossed over into Egypt right now. And then you have the bombing of the UNRWA schools. You work for UNRWA in the Jabalia refugee camp. I do work for UNRWA. And sadly, the bombing of an UNRWA school in Jabalia is the 85th incident against an UNRWA building. We have 67 uh, UNRWA buildings. Many of them are actual shelters that have sustained damage because of uh, strikes nearby or direct hits, killing 176 people who were displaced inside the UN building under the UN flag in search for safety. So nowhere is safe in Gaza. This is, in a nutshell, the situation, especially, as you so rightly mentioned, Amy, 1.7 million Gazans of a total population of 2.2 million, that's roughly 77% of the Gazan population, is now displaced outside of their homes, not knowing whether they're going to go back, especially if they have moved from the north of the Gaza Strip to the south, noting that the north has been completely sealed for the last few weeks. Explain um, what these schools did before and now what's happening. UNRWA has a system of uh, education, schooling, um, where 300,000 girls and boys in Gaza receive quality education, very much focused on human rights, tolerance, conflict resolution. This is before the war. During this war, so for the last now six weeks, these schools have turned into shelters. People in Gaza, sadly, are used to um, are used to wars, and they're used to um, sheltering in UNRWA schools because this is where they feel that there's sanctity, a, a UN, a, a global understanding that when someone is in a in the protection of the UN, then these buildings will not be targeted. Sadly, this is not the case. So not only are Three quarters of the Gaza population now made forcibly displaced, some of them for the second or third time, but also their access to basic, basic food and humanitarian assistance is very, very restricted, given the low level of supplies that have been coming into the Strip, despite an agreement to get trucks in. And can you talk about the children? Well, I should say the infants uh, who are at Al-Shifa. We have all seen the pictures of them not in incubators, but huddled together, I think, wrapped in aluminum to try to maintain their heat. Um, now, U.N. workers getting in and bringing them south. And now, just as we're broadcasting, apparently, some are being taken over the border into Egypt. What did that whole journey involve? How did the U.N 
workers also get in? So I think this this picture of these um, premature um, infants will remain as one of the most compelling ones of this conflict. And I think it'll, it'll, it'll come back to remind us that Gazans really hold on to life. Um, it took a very, very complex and elaborate UN operation to be able to go uh, to Al-Shifa Hospital and remove these uh, premature babies. The mission was led by the World Health Organization's colleagues actual heroes, with uh, support from several uh, UN organizations, including UNRWA. But these kids, I'm afraid, these babies might be joining um, their peers in Gaza who, before the war, um, we had already identified that most children in Gaza suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because of having grown up within a choking blockade on the Strip where they they cannot leave the Strip, and because of having survived so many conflicts at such a young age. I really, really hope that these kids' parents are alive and that they will be taken care of. But that's something to remember about the long-term impact on the psychology of children of all these wars. I wanted to play for you a clip. Um, this is Mark Regev, senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He recently spoke on MSNBC, where he was interviewed by Mehdi Hassan. I have seen lots of children with my own lying eyes being pulled from the rubble. Uh, because so, they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see. Exactly my point, they're, they're, dead, they're Mark. the pictures also, Hamas wants— But there are also people no, that your government has uh, killed. You accept that, right? You've killed children, or do you deny no, that? No, I do not. I do not. I do not. First of all, you don't know how those people died, those children. Oh, wow. That was Mehdi Hassan saying, oh, wow, and Mark Regev said he did not accept that children have died in Gaza. Tamara Arafai, your response. Uh, there are enough—there is enough footage and there is enough documenting from credible sources, including the U.N., of uh, children dying, save the children already a few weeks ago, said that at least 4,000 children died. It is a reality. Every war in Gaza sees scores of children dead, and those who do not die, most of them have long-term impact on their psychological and mental well-being. I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, UNRWA, your agency uh, that serves Palestinians, warning that um, you'll have to stop life-saving operations in Gaza unless you receive more fuel. A couple of days ago, there was an agreement on letting fuel into the Strip after many weeks since the beginning of the war of not allowing fuel in. The Israeli authorities had not allowed fuel in. I want to say a word about the centrality of fuel to humanitarian operations. Trucks that bring the aid from the Rafah crossing, um, electricity generators that provide electricity to water pumping and water desalination so that people can have access to clean drinking water life-saving machines at hospitals, bakeries that run, everything needs fuel. The agreement of two days ago is an agreement to bring in 120,000 liters of fuel to cover two days. 
we require that same amount every single day. So effectively, we're getting half of what we need for our humanitarian operations for the bakeries, the hospitals, the trucks, and the clean water, which then will force us to have to take very difficult decisions as to what do we what, what do we diminish? Do we diminish access to clean drinking water at the risk of skin and gastro diseases, especially in overcrowded shelters? Do we diminish uh, the breadth and the bakeries, especially to people, I just heard you say that World Food Program is warning of famine. Um, what do we diminish? Do we diminish bringing the trucks in from the Rafah border? If we do not get the exact amount we need for a minimal humanitarian response, then we're going to have to function halfway and only provide half of what these people need. Um, if the IDF knows the coordinates of UNRWA locations, um, you know, among them schools, can you explain how at least 40 UNRWA buildings have been hit? 67 buildings now that we're speaking I cannot explain militarily how uh, decisions are taken, but I can reiterate that UNRWA provides very regularly, every two weeks, the GPS locations of all its installations to both parties. So to the Israeli authorities, but also to the de facto Hamas authorities, so that no one can say we did not know. Every one of our schools and installations and warehouses are very clearly marked, and that marking is communicated. What is the UNRWA mandate, tomorrow? The UNRWA mandate is to provide uh, basic services, schools, health services, social protection to Palestine refugees until there's a political solution whereby 5.9 people who are the descendants of the original Palestine refugees who were expelled or fled in 1948, there's a solution that takes them into account so that they're no longer refugees. These Palestine refugees are not citizens of a country, and therefore UNRWA runs services that are like public services, schools and health centers, until there's a political solution, and hopefully they no longer have that status in limbo of a refugee. How do you respond to um, Republicans who early, Senate Republicans who introduced a bill to block funds for UNRWA, accusing it of teaching anti-Semitic school curricula and harboring terrorists in its facilities tomorrow? I respond by reminding of the extremely thorough reviews we do of all our teaching material page by page is reviewed to ensure that nothing we teach in our, um, in our, in our school, over 700 schools, is, runs against the UN uh, values and principles. But I also respond that if UNRWA ceases to exist tomorrow, then there is a huge layer of stabilizing and stability that UNRWA usually offers in a very, very, very uh, volatile area that also collapses. It is in everyone's interest that the UNRWA schools, the health centers, the food assistance and the protection continues because besides its humanitarian and human rights value, it has a stabilizing impact on the region. And what do you say to the Israeli military that says they won't allow in fuel because Hamas will take it? I will say that our trucks take the fuel from the borders into our depots, into our warehouses, and that 
we use it directly or we deliver it directly to the bakeries and the hospitals. So there's no intermediary between the fuel and the beneficiaries. We are the only entity responsible for using that fuel. Finally, Tamara, uh, the U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, has repeatedly called for a ceasefire. Um, that has not been accomplished at this point. There have been protests around the world demanding a ceasefire. Um, the first Jewish-American Congress member, um, Becca Ballant of Vermont, has joined uh, scores of other Congress members in calling for a ceasefire. Um, but especially around the U.N., at this point, what can it do? It can continue calling for a ceasefire. I want to notice that several countries have called for a ceasefire, including France, and that without a ceasefire, it's going to be very difficult to come back from the brink or to de-escalate. So the U.N., on the political side, must con different UN member states must continue to push for a ceasefire. And on the humanitarian side, we must continue to advocate for more funding and for more access to different parts of the Gaza Strip. Because right now, the access of aid agencies is almost entirely restricted to the south. The north is completely sealed, but we have to be able to reach people where they are. And for that, we need a ceasefire. We thank you so much for being with us. Tamara Rafai, spokesperson for UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees. We're going to break now. When we come back, we'll talk more about what's happening in Gaza. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. To talk more about the dire situation in Gaza, we're joined by Mohammed Shahada, a writer and analyst from Gaza, chief communications at Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor and a columnist at the Forward newspaper, a Jewish weekly. Uh, in New York. He's joining us from Copenhagen, where there have been a number of protests. In fact, Mohammed, can you start with those protests? Uh, we are covering the protests here in the country and around the world. What's happening in Copenhagen? That was actually pretty remarkable. I, I, I've never seen a protest of that size in Denmark for 
at least the last two years. There was the climate march last year in November around the elections time. So every political party was very keen to show up there, including the prime minister. But the demonstration yesterday for Gaza was almost twice the size of Denmark's climate march. And the climate is a very huge topic here. And it, it's been a tremendous ongoing daily movement where people move uh, with demonstrations every night to different locations of Denmark's capital to make a statement about the necessity of a ceasefire and to stop the bloodshed in Gaza. So it's it's been extraordinary. And do people there face the same issue that they face in the United States, uh, being accused by some uh, that if they criticize Israel, they're automatically anti-Semitic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of that. Even the Danish prime minister, she laid a wreath uh, of flowers at the Israeli embassy, and then she was asked, would you do the same to Palestinian victims? And she said there is no comparison whatsoever. Israel is defending itself. Hamas is a terrorist organization. So that was basically the sentiment. It's the same in Danish media. So, for instance, the question of, of do you condemn Hamas is, again, the same question as to any person of color whenever they want to talk about what Israel has done to, to them and their own families in Gaza. And the media bias is very visible as well. In the last few days, um, well, the Israeli military completely controls the media of international journalists in Gaza, it does not let them in unless they are embedded with the Israeli military and they review their video, um, uh, unless they're, you know, journalists, Gazan journalists, Palestinian journalists inside Gaza, of course, are there operating. So many of them, uh, more than 30 of them have been killed. But um, in the last few days, the Israeli military has brought in journalists from BBC, from CNN, uh, and they show them a hole uh, at Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, where they say this goes directly down, right near Al-Shifa, uh, into the ground and then underneath Al-Shifa. Can you talk about what we understand at this point? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, Amy, it's it's very horrendous to see journalists agreeing to these humiliating conditions that basically mean anything they convey is literal propaganda, because there's three conditions. You're not allowed to speak to any Palestinian or Gazan to challenge what the IDF is, is spoon feeding you. You're not allowed to go beyond the tour that the IDF has staged. So you stick to what the IDF wants to show you and where they take you. And you have to review the material with them before you publish. So the result of that is, is not journalism, it's propaganda. But with Al-Shifa Hospital, what we've seen is basically for uh, Gaza's main medical complex of giant symbolic um, value and of important a crucial necessity to the lives of thousands. There, was, there were about 50,000 people sheltering there. For Israel to say that it has lost its protected status, it has a huge burden of proof to show that the hospital was used to direct or engage in hostilities against it. But up until now, what we have, the facts that we know, is that not a single bullet was fired against the IDF from the hospital over the last week where they have operated in the hospital completely, not a single bullet, not a single footage of a Hamas rocket being fired from the hospital, and not a single evidence of the sprawling, alleged sprawling command and control centers 
that Israel has published a CGI animated um, footage of and claimed that they knew the precise entrance to. They have not shown any of that. And they have not shown or captured any Hamas militants in the hospital or Hamas members. So basically, there is no satisfying proof for the hospital to lose its protected status. And for what Israel has inflicted on the hospital for the last week, they starved, literally starved everyone inside. About eight babies were suffocated to death. 22 people in the ICU units were killed and six dialysis patients were killed. The overall major, the overall totality of how many people killed were there were 53 in total. So that is very atrocious. And as you said, the only evidence that Israel had to show for it was a hole in the ground. And I consulted with experts in Gaza, in, experienced engineers who are familiar with, with sort of, of different structures that were observed, for instance, Hamas tunnels. And they said that does not look like a Hamas tunnel whatsoever because you have two very giant, very solid concrete columns on both sides of the entrance, the shaft's entrance. And these can only be built by pouring cement down in a mold and vibrating every time you pour a little bit and vibrate it with a, a concrete vibrator and wait for it to dry. And that takes days and it makes a huge noise in a hospital in, in full view of, of thousands of people going in and out on a daily basis. That's not how you build a secret tunnel. And the IDF has not allowed anyone to go inside the alleged tunnel to see what's in it. But even if you presume that it is a tunnel, the IDF would still have a burden of proof to show that Hamas was actually using it at the time of the IDF raid to essentially legitimize that raid or using it at all during that war. They have not shown any evidence of that. I saw one uh, Israeli military spokesperson um, showing a CNN reporter and saying, uh, we believe that at the bottom there where you see a metal door, they haven't opened it because they say they're afraid there are explosives that are attached to it. Uh, it would make some kind of sharp turn, and that would then go under the hospital. So they haven't shown that the thing, that the tunnel itself is under the hospital. They say what's behind it, what they can't see they think makes a turn mm. yeah but even with that door um i know that hamas and other militant groups were abiding by a very strict decision since 2014 at least to not have any military activities in or around hospitals because that was previously israel's pretext for bombing medical facilities and schools and homes so they say they had a strict decision not to use it. Um, you don't need to believe Hamas, but you take a statement that Gaza's Ministry of Health and Hamas as well have made. They said that we would allow any international expedition, a group of experts, to come into Gaza and vet and scrutinize every little aspect of the hospital without any of the patients dying. And Israel's answer to that has been a resounding refusal. So if Israel had a more than a week, they had eight days inside the hospital, daily operations, uninterrupted, unattacked, unimpended, going through every single room, every single detail, and still unable to show any traces of Hamas using the hospital for military activities, the IDF propaganda becomes more or less a laughingstock 
than actual sort of evidence or communication, especially when last week they went to a children's hospital, the Rentisi hospital, after doing the same, surrounding it, besieging it, starving people inside, forcing them out at gunpoint. And then once they went inside, the spokesperson of the IDF, he went to the basement and he showed a piece of paper on the wall and he said, this shows the names of Hamas terrorists guide, uh, that were guarding hostages here. And he showed a baby nappy and a bottle of milk. And he said, that's proof. A bottle of milk in a children's hospital where thousands of people were taking refuge. But even with the list that he showed on the wall, it was basically a calendar with the name Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So if you believe Monday is a terrorist, a legitimate target, go ahead and kill Monday. You would have my utmost sympathy. Do you have any information on the latest negotiations, um, the um, deal where dozens of hostages would be released by Hamas, particularly women and children. Uh, prisoners would be released by Israel. There are thousands of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Um, and there would be some kind of ceasefire. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's plenty of, of proposals that have been put on the table and I've been following them up very meticulously. So the priority right now is to get Israeli children, women and elderly and civilian hostages altogether, especially foreigners, uh, released and returned to Israel. And Hamas alleges that some of them were kidnapped by other groups once the, the fence collapsed, and they, they still need to audit and collect these hostages and release them, which is why they've been asking for a, a temporary ceasefire for five days to allow them to go and find the hostages held by more minor and, and less known groups, Alwit Nasser Salah al-Din, Sarah al-Quds, Kitab Mujahideen, etc., so basically, that's one of the reasons. The other is the negotiations where it stopped is Hamas promised to release about 50 to 70 civilian hostages on stages during a five-day uh, ceasefire in return mainly for Israel to allow food and humanitarian aid and fuel to go to all of Gaza, especially the north, because now the northern half, Israel has not been allowing any food, water, electricity or fuel to go inside the north for the last 44 days, it has become a death zone to force people out and to defeat Hamas militarily by besieging and starving everyone and randomly even killing everyone inside. So basically, Hamas's condition was that Israel allows aid to go to the north for people that are still there, tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 people, and to allow fuel to go to, through the United Nations to run, for instance, the Gaza's sole power plant to power water distillation facilities and water sewage treatment facilities, etc., to prevent diseases and a humanitarian catastrophe. So that has been the demand. There are two logistical uh, stumbling blocks that are obstructing the talks. The, they say the two sides are almost in agreement, but the two major blocks is basically Hamas asking that people who fled to the south be allowed during these five days of ceasefire, they should be allowed to go back if they wanted to, or people in the north to go south. And Israel is objecting to that. And Hamas is asking the Israeli um, military tanks and vehicles on the ground to pull back a little bit to allow for the hostages to be taken out and to be moved to Rafah, where they would be released, and also in, in the south as well. And they're asking the Israelis to suspend their drone surveillance on top of Gaza because they, they are afraid that Israel would use that moment of the hostage release to find out the hideouts of Hamas and their military infrastructure. So it's more of a logistical uh, militant demand than sort of a substantial block 
But Israel is still refusing, as I said, the entry of humanitarian aid and fuel to the northern half. And they are refusing the return of people that were displaced south to return back to the north. Mohammed Sirhad, I want to thank you for being with us, writer and analyst from Gaza, chief of communications at Euro Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, columnist with the Forward newspaper, Jewish Weekly here in New York, joining us from Copenhagen. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show remembering the 74-year-old Canadian-Israeli peace activist Vivian Silver. She was killed October 7th during the Hamas attack on Kibbutz Beri, where she lived. She was declared dead only last week after Israeli authorities identified her remains. Up until last week, her family thought she may have been taken hostage. Vivian Silver had co-founded the Arab Jewish Center for Equality, Empowerment and Cooperation and was a member of Women Wage Peace. In 2017, she joined a march of Israeli and Palestinian women to the shores of the Jordan River to call for an end to Israel's occupation. Our organizing women from all over the country, from every side of the political spectrum, who are saying, enough. Must speak in in Arabic. It's Makafi. Enough. We're no longer willing to do this. We must reach a political agreement. We must change the paradigm that we have been taught for seven decades now, where we've been told that only war will bring peace. We don't believe that anymore. It's been proven that it's no. Tr- it's not true. Those were the words of Vivian Silver in 2017. On Thursday, friends and family and relatives of Vivian Silver gathered for her memorial service. During a recent BBC interview, her son, Jonathan Zeigen, was asked what his mother would say about what's happening in Israel and Gaza now. That this is the outcome. This is the outcome of war, of, um, of not striving for peace. We've been... You know, Israelis have uh, that saying, uh, living on our soul. And this is what happens. It's, um, you know, it's very overwhelming, but it's not completely surprising. Um, we couldn't, We. it's not... Uh, sustainable to live in a state of war for uh, for so long and now it bursts it burst we're joined now by sama salaime she is a writer at 972 magazine a palestinian feminist activist her most recent piece a tribute to vivian which went viral in the piece sama writes quote Nothing prepared me for yesterday's bitter news of Vivian's tragic end. I felt deep despair, like a bottomless sinkhole had opened under the foundations of humanity, where thousands are already buried—men, women, children, innocent Palestinians and Israelis—people who'd wished for peace and did not live to see that wish fulfilled, Sama Salami wrote. Sama, welcome to Democracy Now! Under horrific circumstances— can you tell us more about Vivian and um, your response last week that you, when you learned, no, she wasn't a hostage as you all and her family had hoped, but she had died at the kibbutz she lived on for decades, Betty. Uh, 
Yeah. So thank you for the invitation, and I will um, use the few minutes that you give me to introduce Vivian Silver to your audience. Um, Vivian was a um, um, feminist, um, very optimistic um, woman, and she believed in people. She believed in humanity, and um, she um, she make a difference in every room uh, that she join, every group or initiative or. Um, um, any uh, peace process that she wished to be part of. Um, Vivian, for uh, five decades, um, put her, all of her, dedicated her life uh, to to make um, shared life possible. In Israel, she truly believe uh, of partnership between Palestinian and Israelis to end this um, uh, bashes ugly conflict that we all live in. Um, uh, Vivian uh, um, passed away, she was killed, um, and we didn't know. We we all believe, or her friends, we believe that she she's, um, became a hostage, like uh, 240 um, hostages, because the army told her family that there is no uh, any evidence that something bad happened to her. And they believe it. And um, um, it, we, we, all the friends, all the feminists and peace activists uh, prayed uh, for her safety. And we truly believe that she, she will know how to communicate with, uh, with people in Gaza. Um, she was in Gaza. So she visited Gaza many times. And uh, when after the siege uh, started, she insisted to take um, um, Palestinian kids from the checkpoint, from the border to um, um, to the hospitals inside Israel, and she combined them. We have a dream that one of these kids that she helped will find her and will communicate with her in Gaza. Um, these images um, um, were wishful thinking for anyone, for everyone, and we had to deal with the devastating sad news that she's gone and um the the painful thing in israel that there are some people who used her memory to justify the war in gaza something that she really didn't believe in force and and militarism and and bombs and and she really wanted and fighted for peaceful uh, um, process and peaceful ending for this uh, conflict and, for example, one of the Israeli activists um, put her name on a, on a rocket that was supposed to bomb Gaza uh, for her memory. And this is the, quite the opposite thing that uh, Vivian uh, um, teach us. Um, the Minister of Security and Internal Security in Israel, um, Ben Gvir, is, is this extremist fascist um, minister in, in Netanyahu's um, government also posted and has tweeted his in his Twitter account um, 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 saying that this this is what the Palestinians do with people who believe in peace and she paid the price and this kind of 
ugliness and and uh, um, harassment and incitement against peace activists. This is the atmosphere here. We were not allowed to demonstrate, and still against the demonstrate against the war, we cannot shout uh, as Palestinian activists inside Israel that we need and we want ceasefire. Any gathering between Arab and Jewish is now forbidden in um, in Israel. But what uh, what the death of the or the murder of Vivian do succeed to do is to gather hundreds of people in her memorial, Arab and Jewish, uh, people, Palestinian and Israelis, uh, men and women, religious and secular, from all the aspect, all the uh, region, came to say goodbye to this wonderful, amazing, uh, prominent woman. We had hoped to have her son Yonatan on as well, but he is still sitting shiva right now since the funeral, still mourning his mother's death. Um, is it true that um, someone wrote Vivian's name on a rocket that would be used in Gaza? This is one of the photos that one of the activists showed me during the memorial, and I was shocked uh, by this uh, this photo, someone posted that on, on the social media uh, for her memorial, which is, it's like putting your souls in our open wound, and it's we 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 both cry to see this because this is this is not the uh, um, memorial thing. That is something that Vivian Silver will uh, will do or wish or want her name on any military um, uh, action or. Um, um, a violent tool. Uh, she used to say that uh, if you, if your only tool is is a hammer, everything, the, every problem around you will, will be will look like a nail that you have to hit it. And and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict have to be dealt with with different tool. And you have to be creative. And we have to be optimistic. We have to 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 speak and to keep the dialogue going on and to compromise to find the solution and not to keep the, this uh, circle of blood going every two years. And, and this is this is was her uh, uh, legacy, and this is what we have to march for and and fight for uh, after her death. Uh, we just have a minute to go, but Sama, what do you want to see happen now, and what do you think Vivian would be saying right now? I think Vivian, as we know her, with her um, uh, sarcasm and uh, great sense of humor, she she will gather uh, us as a group of women. She will uh, speak and she will break the law by um, uh, organizing demonstrations against the war. And she will call for ceasefire now. She will um, have the courage to share photos and images from Gaza, and will she will she usually always have this unique courage uh, voice that nobody um, um, have around her. And she will be the voice of Palestinian uh, families, Palestinian colleagues, and Palestinian innocent people that uh, send, um, send us all the time messages that they are very sad for her lost and they, they are um, um, missing her and they could not be at the memorial because of the war. Um, um, Vivian will march around and, and will break the, the siege. She will, she will do everything 
you know, against this war. And and she usually have this, I don't know where she bring this power from uh, to recruit people and who people will follow. And um, uh, this is her energy. And, and we... Well. Certainly, the peace movement in Israel, Palestine. Salama Salame, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We'll link to your piece in 972 Magazine. I'm Amy Goodman.